Hi folks, we want to welcome you to our Sunday school time here at the Kermansville Christian Church. And we're so glad that you can join us again uh, this morning as we are doing our survey through the Old Testament. We're up to the section of First and Second Kings, Second Chronicles. We're looking at Israel's kings and prophets. And today we're in lesson 15. We're in Second Kings chapter 5. We're going to look at 5 verse 1 through chapter 8 verse 15. And I've entitled this Jehoram and Elisha. Now, I know there's two kings who are named Jehoram in uh, the scripture. One is the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. The other is the king of Judah. We're looking at the king who is the king of the northern kingdom. But again, with these lessons, primarily we're looking at the ministry of Elisha. So, we're not, we may refer to some of the passages, we may not, but we're going to kind of just kind of go through a survey today looking at these two and a half chapters and uh, give you some perspective of what's going on. I think you'll be interested in some of the things that we'll be looking at today. All right, so let's, let's start. First of all, we're going to talk about the healing of Naaman. This is found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. Now, Naaman was a great and honorable man who was the commander of the Syrian army. Now, I think it's interesting. The scripture points out that he was a great man, so he obviously was well-known among the Syrians, among the Arameans there, and he was honorable. I think it's very fitting that the scripture calls him an honorable man. Because a lot of times we think of enemies as being purely evil. But they're saying that this man was an honorable man. Now, while he was a mighty warrior, he also suffered from leprosy. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. Leprosy was the one disease that everybody did not want in the Middle East at this time. It's not necessarily Hansen's disease. When we think of lepers today, we think of those who are suffering from Hansen's disease, where parts of their body are worn off because of the nerve endings being dead. It's possible that it may have been Hansen's disease that he was struggling with, but it's also possible that, really, leprosy was any kind of skin disorder that a person might have. So we know that people suffer from rashes, people suffer from skin problems and so forth. That would all be lumped in as leprosy in the Old Testament law. So he was a mighty warrior. He also suffered from leprosy. Now, he had a young slave girl, a young slave girl who was taken from Israel, told her mistress of a prophet in Israel. All right, so these were the nature of the times, folks. Nations would raid nations. Yes, they would have outright wars with each other, but they would also send raiders to go and raid the villages and the cities, and they would take and capture individuals and make them into slaves, as well as capture animals and take whatever loot they can. So the text tells you that there was a young Israeli girl who had been taken in one of these raids who was serving the mistress or the wife or one of the wives of this great mighty warrior of Syria. 
And so she is telling, because she knows that her master is suffering from leprosy, she is telling her mistress about a prophet in Israel. She stated that this prophet would heal her master of leprosy. So this girl, and it's obviously would be a young girl, pre-teens, maybe even a teenager, tells her mistress about the great prophet, which we know is Elisha, that he is able to heal her master of leprosy. Well, that sets in motion a chain of events. So Naaman then reported the girl's words to his master, the king of Syria. So Naaman, of course, he's suffering from this disease. When you're suffering from something, you want relief from it. You want healing. He goes to his master and says, hey, there's somebody. I was just told this. There is somebody in Israel, a prophet, who heals of leprosy. I need your help. Or I need you to let me go there. Whatever the reason, he goes to the king. Now, Naaman was sent to Israel with gold, silver, clothing, and a letter from the king. So basically what happens is the king lets him go. So they take a large amount of gold, a large amount of silver. Why clothing? Well, remember, clothing is not like now where you can just go to a store and just buy whatever you want. And then if you feel like it's wearing out, you get rid of it. Clothing was a very, really expensive thing in that day. And you'll see a little bit later on in the story that clothing is given away to, to help others because they maybe only had one change of clothing or if that. Okay, so clothing. And then there's a letter from the king. The king, in his letter, the king requested that the king of Israel would heal his servant Naaman of leprosy. So picture this. The text tells you that they leave with their entourage, loaded down with all these goods. They go to Samaria, the capital of Israel. They have, basically, they would be allowed to have entrance to the king because here's, here's this commander of the Syrian army showing up. And they present this letter from the king of Syria, and the letter says, I want you to heal my servant. I want you, king, to heal my servant. Well, the king of Israel despaired and believed that the Syrian king was provoking a war. Well, it's only natural that you would think that, because first of all, remember, while Jehoram is not following after Baal, as his father and mother did, he's still following in the sin of Jeroboam. He's still an idolater. He doesn't necessarily believe God can do anything. And so he feels like he's being provoked because in his mind, who can heal of leprosy? Because they have all kinds of lepers in Israel. Who's able to do this? So he thinks that this is the king of Syria picking a fight looking for a reason to attack him. So he despairs. Well, the text goes on and tells us that Elisha sent word to the king of Israel asking, why does he despair and tear his clothes? Because the text will tell you that when the king despaired, he tore his clothes, which is a, a signify of great anguish and despair. So the king, Elisha says, hey, 
Why are you despairing? Why are you mourning? Why are you tearing your clothes? What, what reason is there? So he tells the king to send him Naaman so that he knows there is a prophet in Israel. So he says, King, you send me Naaman, and I'll show you that there is a prophet of God in Israel because I will heal this man. He will be healed. So guess what? Naaman went and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So here is this great, important commander of the Syrian army, goes with his entourage, goes to wherever Elisha is staying, appears there, stands at his door, waiting to be healed. Now, you've got to understand what's going on here. Elisha sent word that he should go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. Now, okay, so this is where some of us get lost with the text, because you're like, okay, so he shows up at the door, Elisha sends his servant out and says, hey, I want you to go tell him, go, go dip yourself, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Well, that would seem like a pretty normal thing. I'll just tell him this, just relay that message. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, what is happening here would be offensive to Naaman. What do you mean, offensive? Well, notice how he reacts. Naaman was furious that Elisha did not come out and heal him. It would be a great slight, for here's the commander of the Syrian army. I'm showing up at your door. He has no regard for prophets or anybody. I'm showing up at the door. You can't even come out and pay me due respect in the authority that I have. You send your servant out to tell me to go wash myself in the Jordan River seven times? So he's really hot and angry. He protested that there were better rivers in Syria than all the waters of Israel. So he mentions in the text two specific waters in Syria that he felt were better quality than that river Jordan. Isn't it interesting? He's upset. He's not... Elisha didn't come out, just heal him. Now he wants me to go wash in this river. Are you kidding me? Well, thankfully, he's got some servants who encourage him to do something differently. What do you mean, George? Well, his servants encouraged their master to heed Elisha's instructions, and he did. So what do the servants do? They come to him and say, Master, what does it hurt for you to go and do this? I mean, if he had asked you to do something spectacular, you would have done it for your healing, but he's asking you to go wash in that river Jordan? And so they encourage him to go and do that. And so he listens to the words of his servants, and he goes and dips himself. So he went down and dipped in the Jordan River seven times, and his flesh was restored. So seven times he goes and dips himself in the water, and as he's doing that, his flesh is restored. He's healed. Healed of leprosy. Now here's what happens. Elisha returned, excuse me, Naaman returned to Elisha and proclaimed that there is no God 
except in Israel. Basically, he shows up and says, there is only one God in the universe, and he is here in Israel. Everything else is meaningless. Everything else is not a God. This is the God of the universe. He has healed me of my leprosy. He offered Elisha a gift. Remember, he's got this gold, he's got this silver, he's got change of clothes. He was to bring that at the request of his king for the healing of the king's servant, the commander. He says here, he offered Elisha a gift and the prophet refused to take any gift. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? That's so different today sometimes in Christianity. Here he is, he's offering Elisha a gift. Hey, all the gold, silver you want, here's some clothes. Elisha refuses to take any gift. That's just amazing, isn't it? Well, it doesn't end there. Naaman asked to be given two mule loads of earth from Israel. So when he's offering this gift to Elisha, Elisha says, nope, I don't want anything. Well, Naaman says, grant me something. Let me take two mule loads of earth from Israel. Why would he do that? Well, it's symbolic because God who healed him was the God of Israel, so he wanted to take a part of Israel with him. He goes one step further, and I think this is where it's very, very significant. He also proclaimed that he would not worship, he would, he would worship no God except the God of Israel. All right, so here is a Gentile, folks, who is a pagan worshiper, worships the God of Syria, or the gods of Syria, and he's proclaiming that from this point on, he would not worship any other God except the God of Israel. So there's a change that's happening with Naaman. But he's going one step further now. He also asks for forgiveness for bowing down in the temple of Rimon with his master. He basically says, says, look, please grant me pardon because so many times a year I have to go with my master and he leans on my hand, I'm his attendant, and we have to bow in the temple of Rimon, which is the god that the Syrians worship. Would you please forgive me this one act because I am worshiping the god of Israel. Forgive me. Now, I think this is a significant story for us to ponder. Because so often we think that being a follower of Jesus, and I think of many places around the world right now where it is not safe to be a follower of Jesus, we have it in our North American mind that you need to be vocal about that. Well, the reality is, is that here is Naaman. He's not wanting to be vocal about it. He wants to worship the Lord. He wants to serve his master. But he knows that if he reveals that he is worshiping the God of his enemy, he probably would have been killed. But notice now, I think it's interesting because notice how Elisha responds. Elisha told Naaman to go in peace and he departed for Syria. Basically, he affirmed him. It's okay. I think it's okay, folks. I think it's okay. I think that's what's significant here. Now, the story doesn't end. 
with this. We're not at the end of chapter 5 because there is another incident that happens now which will make you wake up if you realize what's going on here. Okay? Since Elisha declined a gift, Gehazi decided to run after Naaman and get something. Now remember Gehazi? Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. We've seen him several times before. Remember in the raising of the Shunammite woman's son who had been dead, Gehazi was sent ahead with the staff, laid it on, his, on the child's face, and the child did not revive. He came back with the report. So Naaman, excuse me, Elisha has, still has this servant, Gehazi, and because Elisha declined the gift, Gehazi's thinking, well, maybe I can get something. So he runs after Naaman. Gehazi stopped Naaman and requested a talent of silver and clothing for two young men. He makes this story up about where there are two young prophets who came from the sons of the prophets and we would like to help them out. Is it possible to get, the master has sent me to get some help from you, a talent of silver and, and some clothing for these young men to meet their needs. Sounds like a really good story, doesn't it? Really spiritual, really meet their needs. Well, Naaman, of course, is still very thankful for what God has done and he would do anything. So guess what? He doubled the request and gave it to Gehazi. So he gave him two talents of silver and, and basically gave him double the amount of clothes. Now Gehazi then what? Who then hid it in a house. So he takes that once he departs from Naaman and he goes and hides the material in his house and guess what? He heads back to be with his master. Now when Gehazi returned to Elisha, the prophet asked him where did he go? That's a natural question. You know, if you have somebody who's with you all the time and the one person is away for a time period, you don't know where they've gone, you would naturally say, hey, where you been? I've been missing you. I haven't seen you around today. What's going on? Well, Gehazi replied that he did not go anywhere. He lied, folks. Well, first of all, he lied to Naaman. Now he's lying here. Well, I want you to notice what happens now. Okay, I want you to notice what happens. Elisha stated that his heart went with him when Naaman turned to back to meet Gehazi. So Elisha says, you know what? I was with you. My heart went with you, and I saw Naaman turn back when you approached to meet you. Basically, he's telling Gehazi, I know everything. God has shown me what's taking place. Now, here's what happened. It's amazing. Elisha questioned if it was time to receive money and goods. Now, this is another great point here. They're at a point in the history of Israel where Israel, the people of the northern tribes, the ten tribes, have turned away from God, and the, and the ministry of the prophet is to call them back to God. And yes, they just healed this Syrian commander, but that's the reason why he turned down the gift. This isn't a time for, quote, acquiring things. 
It isn't a time for receiving goods and money. There's, there's more pressing things that are going on here. That's what's implied here by what Elijah is saying. He's telling Gehazi, that's not why we're here. That's not what this is about, so that you can get money and some clothing. So I want you to notice what happens next. It's really a judgment. The prophet proclaimed that the leprosy of Naaman would cling to Gehazi and his descendants. Basically, he says, you know what? You did wrong. And because you did wrong, here's the judgment. The leprosy that I cleansed from Naaman is now going to cling to your body and the body of your descendants because of your sin. So chapter 5 ends with this. At that moment, Gehazi left the prophet's presence, leprous and white as snow. Now, you have to understand, what does that mean? Well, that means the judgment is more than just that he gets Naaman's disease. But among the Jewish people, he would then now be considered a what? An outcast forever. And we're going to see this a little bit further as we get into our lesson today, what exactly that means when we look at four lepers a little bit later on. So that is the healing of Naaman. Rejoicing, victory for Naaman and his turning to the Lord. Gehazi chasing after gold, money, and stuff and being judged. Isn't that interesting? Well, that brings us now to 2 Kings chapter 6. We're just going to look at the first seven verses here. And we're going to talk about the floating axe head. So there's a little story here, again, that shows you God working through the ministry of Elisha. So what's going on here? Well, the sons of the prophet, remember who the sons of the prophet are. They were this guild, uh, this school of those who found it to be their task to instruct the people of the northern kingdom in the ways of the Lord. So the sons of the prophets told Elisha that the place where they lived with him was small. So Elisha had a house, and so these guys, they want to be with the, with the prophet, so they, what? They're living with him, and they're saying, it's really small here, we need to do something. So they suggested that they go to the Jordan and, and make a place where they can live. Go to the Jordan, each man get a piece of wood, and, and let's make a place where we can stay. So as they were cutting down the trees, the axe head fell into the waters. So they're cutting down the tree, and, you know, it's not like the axe you would buy at the local hardware store. It is somehow attached to the top of the stick, and they're trying to cut down this, and the axe head falls off and falls into the water. One cried out that the axe head was borrowed and now it is lost. So again, remind yourself, these are not people who have extremely a lot of money where everybody has their own axe or whatever. They borrowed this axe, and while they're doing this work, of course, they lose the axe head. Well, the prophet asked where it fell in the water, and he then cut off a stick. 
I understand it doesn't make any sense. Maybe you and I, when we first read this, would think, well, maybe he's going to poke around in the water to see if he could find where it is in the water. Well, he threw the stick into the river and the axe head floated on the water. Whoa. Uh, when's the last time you dropped a piece of metal in water? Did you notice how it floated there? It didn't float. It what? It sank to the bottom. This is what's happening here. But he throws this stick into the river and the axe head floats. How's that possible? Folks, it's a miracle. It's a working of God in this situation. So the prophet then told them to pick up the axe head. All right, you guys get that axe head. And thus ends that story. Well, now we come to verse 8 through 23, and we're going to go back to the Syrians. We're going to talk about the Aramean army. And again, this is with regards to the prophet Elisha, and we're going to talk about Jehoram a little bit as well, but he's not the main focus here. So when we look at chapter 6, verses 8 to 23, you're going to start off by seeing that the king of Syria made plans concerning his attack on Israel. So the king of Syria, of course, he's going to be in a war room with his commanders. They're trying to decide how they're going to attack Israel or make raids or whatever. So he's making plans. Well, the text goes on and tells you that the prophet warned the king of Israel, who in turn tested the information given to him. So, of course, the king of Syria is making his plans. God reveals to the prophet what the plans are. Elisha then, in turn, sends word to the king of Israel, hey, don't go over this way. You're, there's going to be an attack there. Avoid this area. Syria is going to be there. And, and guess what? So the king of Israel, not it kind of reflects he's not trusting in Elisha, but, well, let's check it out. He sends somebody to see what's going on there, and it's confirmed. And guess what? Here's what happens. The king found Elisha's information to be true and avoided the Syrians several times. So we're not just talking about one time here, folks. We're talking about several times of avoiding a possible loss in battle because God has revealed what is in the heart of the king of Syria. Well, of course, that's going to create some repercussions. So the text then goes on and tells us that the king of Syria questioned if there were spies among them revealing his plans to Israel. That's going to be the natural thought. How in the world is the king of Israel figuring this out? There must be somebody inside. There must be, what do we call it, a mole. There must be somebody who's revealing the information. Well, it was reported to him that Elisha the prophet revealed the king's words to the enemy. The text even says that Elisha the prophet reveals what you say in your bedroom. Meaning your most intimate conversations. The, this prophet, Elisha, is telling everyone what's going on. Well, they got to deal with this, don't they? They can't have somebody revealing their plans, so what follows is only natural. So the king wanted to find Elisha's location so they could seize him. 
So we got to get this guy. Where's he at so we can get him? That's what's happening here. Well, I want you to notice something further that's going on. The king sent an army and they surrounded the city where Elisha was staying. Now what you're going to see is in the scripture is that Elisha, like most of the prophets, would move around from place to place. So he's in a certain place. The king has revealed where that place is. He sends a massive army. They surround the place where Elisha is staying. In the morning, Elisha's servant despaired at the sight of the surrounding army. So this is not Gehazi anymore. So after Gehazi, obviously he got another servant. Well, in the morning, this servant looks out and man, he sees this great army surrounding the city that they're in. And they're like, oh my goodness, we're in trouble here. Well, Elisha prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant so that he can see. Now, this is a good narrative to kind of point out to us that we're not truly aware of what's going on around us in the spiritual world. So Elisha is asking that the prophet, servant, whoever he was, that his eyes would be open so that he understand what's going on. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw the hills filled with angels. Basically, the description here is the, the, the hills were filled with horses and chariots of fire. Now remember, why do we know that that's angels? Because remember, it was a chariot of fire that came and took Elisha up to heaven. So the servant sees that, hey, it's no big deal. The angels are here. They're going to take care of this. But that's not the end of the story. Elisha asked the Lord to strike the Syrians with blindness. Now, I'm not sure what kind of blindness this is, but it's a type of blindness. How do you know that? Well, well we're going to see why here in a second. Elisha told the blinded Syrians to follow him, and he will lead them to the man they seek. Now, they were blinded in such a way that they would follow Elisha to wherever he was going, not sure where they're going, but Elisha had told him, I'll take you to the man that you seek. Well, they're seeking him, okay? So Elisha led them to Samaria where he prayed that their eyes were open. So he takes this army with him. They follow him. They go into Samaria, into the city. And then he says, God, open their eyes. Well, it's a little too late now. They're surrounded, they're surrounded by the armies of Israel. So the king of Israel asked Elisha if he should kill them. It's only natural. You want me to wipe them out? You want me to take care of this? No, it's, that's not what happens. Notice what goes on here. Elisha told the king to feed his captives and release them to their masters. So they had a feast for them. Isn't that amazing? Your enemy comes. You've got them right where you need them. You can wipe them out if you need to. But we're going to throw them a feast because God told them to throw them a feast and sent them back to their master. The troops returned to the king of Syria and the raiding in Israel ceased. So they returned. Why did that cease? 
Well, you got your plans for being revealed all the time by the prophet. Send somebody to take out the prophet. He doesn't take them out. He actually captures them. He's not the person to mess with, is it? You don't want to mess with Israel. So obviously that's what's going on here. Well, now we come to verse 24 of chapter 6, which goes all the way through verse 20 of chapter 7. And we're going to see that there really is judgment in Samaria. Now remember, in the law, it said very clearly that if Israel turned away from the Lord, he would punish them in multiple ways. One of the ways that he would punish them is with famine. And so here's what happens. Okay, so we start off, verse 24, the king of Syria besieged Samaria and there was famine in the city. Now here's what happens in a siege. Basically, the, basically everything is surrounded and you do that because you're waiting for the city to starve out. They would use all their supplies and have nothing left and then they would not be in a position to fight if they ultimately launched an attack to take the city. So that's what's happening here. The famine was so severe that a head of a donkey sold for 80 shekels of silver. So the famine was so severe that even the head of a donkey, that was being used for food. It's, think about that. That's just beyond imagination. The head of a donkey was being used for food and it sold for 80 shekels of silver. Something like that. It also, to be honest with you, the text talks about that the droppings of birds were sold. That's how desperate things were in the city. So as the king was passing by on the wall, now the wall would be such that, you know, they would have army on top of the wall, they could look out, they could do whatever, and the king is passing by on the wall, and he could look down over the wall to see where the, the Syrians are, but he could also look down and see what's going on in the city. So as he's passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him for help. She said, a woman asked for her son as food, and they would eat the woman's son next. So here's what happens. The woman cries out, I need your help. There was this woman. She said, let's eat my son so that we can have food, and then when we're done with him, we will cook her son and have food as well. This is a desperate situation, folks. They're talking about cannibalism. So when they ate the first woman's son, the other woman hid her son. So they feasted cannibalism on this one woman's son. Well, after they were done eating him, the other woman, she's not going to give up her son. She got what she wanted. She got something to eat. She hides her son so that he would not be eaten. Now, when the king heard the woman's words, he tore his clothes in grief. This is a terrible situation. There's no way out of it. He tears his clothes in grief. Now the people could see that the king wore sackcloth on his body. Now in this ancient culture, as well as the culture of the nations around them, when it was a period of mourning, 
they would put on sackcloth to, to mourn what is happening to them. And so the king, yes, he's wearing his kingly robes and garments, but underneath it, he is mourning what is happening and he puts on sackcloth. Well, he makes a proclamation. He swore that he would have the head of Elisha that day. So somehow he is blaming God for this. Why do you say God? He wants Elisha's head. Well, Elisha is the prophet of God. And so he's saying, I will have his head today. Well, now we see that the text take an interesting twist. Elisha was sitting with the elders in a house when he made a proclamation. All right, now let's stop for a moment. What we're going to see here is obviously, remember now, the city of Samaria is surrounded by the enemy, the Syrians. So that helps us to understand the context. Elisha is in the capital city, somewhere in the capital city. He's sitting with the elders when he makes a proclamation. He stated that a messenger had been sent for his head and they were to hold him. Guys, there's going to be a guy showing up here. He's supposed to come here and take my head from my body. I want you to hold him for a little bit. He also stated that the one who sent the messenger would be right behind him. So here's what Elisha is saying. There's a guy coming. He's supposed to come and kill me. You hold him. And right after that, there's going to be another guy coming. He's the one who sent the guy to kill me. So guess what happens? The king arrived and stated that the calamity is from the Lord. So obviously this messenger shows up. They hold him. No sooner than they hold him, the king shows up and states very clearly that this is from the Lord. See, the king is recognizing that this judgment is from God. They would have to recognize that. It was in their law. They would know that. But he also says this, and I think this is a significant point. He questioned why he should wait any longer before surrendering. I think we'll look at this passage together, okay? I think it's, it's interesting what's going on here, okay? It's going on here. It's, it's rather amazing when you think about what is happening here because you've got to wonder why in the world is this happening? Well, here's what he says. Verse 33 of chapter 6. And while he was still talking with him, the messenger coming down to him, and then the king, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now, here's what's going on. He's, that's why he was wearing the sackcloth. He's been waiting for God to answer, God to, re, to save them, God to, to reach out and touch them. Because when you're in the midst of the calamity, even if you're not doing right, guess who you're crying out to? God. And so the king is at a point of desperation, and I think we can all relate to him because he's at a point of desperation where he says, why should I wait any longer? It's not going to happen. This judgment is from God. We're forsaken. Why should I wait any longer? I should just go ahead and what? Surrender. 
That's what's happening here. I think you and I can relate to that. When we're in the midst of it and we're crying out to God, help me, help me, help me, take this away, and it doesn't seem like anything is happening and you've been patiently waiting on God and nothing is happening, you can understand how this king is feeling because you and I say the exact same things and we say, why should I wait any longer? He's not going to do it. It's doubt and unbelief. That's what's going on here. Well, I want you to notice what Elisha says. Elisha called them to hear the word of the Lord. So Elisha makes a proclamation from God. He tells them that by this time tomorrow, a sea of flour and a sea of barley will sell for a shekel. So you can buy a sea, which is a measurement of flour for a shekel, and you can buy a sea of barley, will be sold for a shekel at the city gate. Now remember, right now, a head of a donkey is going for what? 80 shekels of silver. So wheat and barley, which are grains that would be used in making bread, that obviously would be way beyond the 80 shekels of silver, but he's saying by this time tomorrow, within the next 24 hours, folks, you're going to be able to buy these things at the city gate for a shekel. Now, an officer who aided the king questioned whether this would take place. So there's this officer, a military man, who's with him that the king is leaning on, and he says, even if God were to open the heavens and flood down with blessings, would we see this? He's really questioning whether God can do this. So I want you to notice how the prophet responds. Elisha told the officer that he would see it and that he would not taste it. Well, it's kind of an ominous, kind of a really harsh, dark thing to say. You're going to see this, but you're not going to partake of it. I want you to remember that he told him that. So here's what happens next. There were four leprous men sitting at the gate of the city. Now, here's the scoop, folks. The lepers would not have been allowed into the city. Why? Because they have leprosy. They're unclean. They're supposed to separate themselves. So what do they do? They sit at the gate of the city, hoping for what? Somebody to have mercy on them. So they're outside of the gate of the city. But out there is who? The Syrians. So they were trying to decide whether to enter the city and die or go to the Syrians and die. So they're trying to decide, okay, if we stay here, we're going to die. Well, you know, if we go into the city, we're going to die because there's nothing there. But, you know, if we go over to the Syrians, maybe, maybe the Syrians will help us. The worst that can happen is, guess what? We die. No matter what happens, we die. So... At twilight, they went to the camp of the Syrians and found that no one was there. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So here's these four lepers. You know what? If we stay here, we die. If we go in the city, we die. If we go to the Syrians, maybe we'll die. Either way, we're going to be dead. Let's, let's go check it out. 
So they go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they go to the camp of the Syrians, they found that there was no one there. Why? The Lord caused the Syrians to think that the Egyptians and Hittites had come to help Israel. The text tells you that they're thinking that the king of Israel hired Egypt, armies from Egypt and armies from the Hittites to help rescue them. And so they got spooked. So the Syrians left quickly without their supplies and animals. So they broke camp, but they did just left everything the way it was. All their animals, all their food, all their gold and silver and everything else, they just left it and hightailed it out of there because they thought there's these two armies coming and they didn't want to face them in battle. So here's what happens. The lepers went from tent to tent, taking gold and clothing as they eat and drank. So basically, they're going, oh, I like this gold bracelet over here. Oh, that's a nice outfit. I'll take that. That'll be helpful later on. Wow, look, there's something to eat. And so they went from tent to tent, and they ate and drank. Now, here's what happens. It's interesting. They became convicted and decided to tell the king that the Syrian camp was empty. So here they are, they're enjoying themselves, taking of the plunder, and they're kind of getting convicted. They feel guilty. They're like, you know what, this isn't right. We're out here, we're having a high time in the city. It's not really good. I mean, there's cannibalism going on there. You know, this isn't right that we're not saying something. So here's what they do. They told the gatekeepers, again, they wouldn't have been allowed in the city because of their leprosy, so they told the gatekeepers, who in turn told the king. Now, the king thought it was a Syrian trick, but his servants convinced him to send someone to look. So the king thought, oh, this is just a trick to get us out there, then they'll attack us and kill us. This, this is just a trick. I mean, he's forgetting what Elisha just said to him the day before the day before. So his servants said, no, no, what, let's just send somebody out to take a look. So the men searched for the Syrian army until the Jordan River, and they found that they had fled. And basically they left loot everywhere. On the road, they left supplies everywhere as they fled. <clears throat> They then went back to the king and reported the camp was empty and filled with loot. So they go back to the king and said, yep, king, they're gone. And guess what? The place is loaded. They left everything. So here's what happens. The people went out of the city and plundered the Syrian camp. So everybody hightails it out of the city. Why? Because there's food out there, folks. They have nothing in the city. They've been eating each other. They hightail it out there to the Syrian camp to get what they want. That evening, flour and barley sold at the city gate for the price foretold by Elisha. God told them through the prophet that next day they would be able to buy barley and flour for a shekel. And guess what? The next day came, and at the city gate, the price was a shekel for each of those. 
Now, remember the officer? Well, the officer who attended the king was put in charge of the city gate. So the, the officer who basically said he didn't believe this was going to happen was put in charge of the city gate to make sure everything's okay. Well, here's what happens. He was trampled by the mob of people at the city gate and died. So at the city gate, that's the main entrance to the whole city, people are rushing out to get what they can of the loot. He's there. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was trying to stop them, maybe trying to get them to be in order. And when people are panicked and they're going out and they're starving, they just trample him and he dies. And the text tells you that this happened in accordance with what Elisha said, that he would see and not taste it. So he would see, yes, the heavens were open and blessing was there, but he would not be able to taste of the loot. Well, that brings us to chapter 8. So we've got a couple more stories we want to mention here before we finish up our time. First of all, verses 1 to 6, we're going to talk again about the Shunammite woman. So Elisha told the Shunammite woman to leave the area because a seven-year famine was coming. So he forewarns this woman who has, remember she built a house, a, a, a place for him on top of her house, and uh, she cared for him every time he passes by. Well, he tells her, look, I want you to be aware there's going to be a seven-year famine. So the text tells you that the woman fled with her family to the land of the Philistines until the famine was over. So obviously this was a famine centered in Israel. Obviously a judgment of God. So the woman is told to go and flee. So she goes to the land of Philistia to wait out the famine. And that's exactly what she did. So when the famine was over, she and her family returned to Israel and appealed to the king for the return of her land and house. Because they just would have up and left, but when they go back, obviously somebody's living in their stuff. They want it back. They go to the king. I want my land back. And I want my house. Now the king, at this time, while the woman's showing up to make her appeal... The king was asking Gehazi concerning the deeds of Elisha in restoring the boy to life. So Gehazi, even though he's a leper at this time, he's with the king and he's kind of telling the king, maybe this is how he's getting by in life, he's telling the king about the deeds of Elisha. And at that point, he's telling the king about the raising of the Shunammite woman's son. Gehazi then pointed out to the king that it was this woman whose son, whose son was restored by Elisha. You know, he's telling the story about the son who's raised, and there she is, and he says, King, this is the woman. That's her son. That's who Elisha raised. So guess what happens? The king then commanded that her land and house with its proceeds be returned to her. What proceeds? Well, anything the land would have made during the seven years of the famine was to be returned to her. And that was by order of the king. So it would have been done. So God took care of her. Well, that brings us now to 
really a fulfillment of a prophecy that was given to Elijah. Remember, back in 1 Kings 18, when Elisha was on Mount Horeb, and he said, I'm the only one who's of the Lord, and I'm the only one left, and everyone's forsaken the Lord. Well, you remember the Lord told him to come and meet him on the cliff, and it was a fire and the earthquake and the great wind. But he wasn't in that, but in the still small voice. And then he told Elisha that you were to go and do several things. One of the things was is to anoint Haziel king over Syria. Well, we're going to look at the fulfillment of that because you say, well, Elisha didn't do that. Well, Elisha is going to take care of it. So here's what happens. Elisha went to Damascus and Ben-Hadad was told that the prophet had come. So by this point, Ben-Hadad knows who the prophet is because, of course, it was the prophet who was revealing his plans. It was the prophet who blinded the Syrian army. It, this is the prophet who healed Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. He knows who Elisha is. The king sent Haziel with a gift to inquire of the prophet concerning his recovery. Obviously, at this point, again, the king is sick. And he's wondering, am I going to survive? So he sends Haziel, who is a servant of his, to go with a gift to inquire of the prophet concerning his recovery. When Haziel met Elisha, the prophet told him to tell the king that he will live. All right, I want you to go back and you tell him he's going to live. However, Elisha told him that instead the king will die. You know, you could tell him he's going to live, but that's not what's going to happen. He's actually going to die. Here's what happens then. Elisha then stared at Haziel for a long period of time, and he wept openly. In fact, the text will tell you that Haziel felt very uncomfortable. You ever had somebody stare at you a long time, just looking at you? not saying anything, just staring at you. for a long, It just makes you feel uncomfortable. And then to have the person who's staring at you crying? What's going on? And, and, and basically Haziel reacts to that, like what's going on here? Well, then Elisha told him that he will do evil to Israel and that he will become king of Syria. That's why Elisha was weeping. Because Elisha knew what Haziel would do to the Israeli people when he would come and attack. Then Haziel returned, told the king that Elisha said he would recover. He goes back and he says, hey, you know, king, Elisha says you're going to recover. Well, it doesn't end there. What happens? Well, the next day, Haziel suffocated the king and became the king over Syria in his place. In fact, he basically says he put a wet cloth over his face and suffocated. Well, that's, folks, what they do in waterboarding. He killed the king the next day. And guess what? He becomes king over Syria. So that brings us really to the end of our time here in our study of 2 Kings. 
Now, next week, we're going to move on. We're going to start, again, looking at the kingdom of Judah. So we're going to focus on, again, what 2 Kings says, as well as the Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And we're going to look at Jehoram, the king of Judah, as well as some other things that the text is going to be looking at. So I'm hoping that you'll be with us next week as we look at this together.